0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Try going um, on the food stamp diet for a week and see how important food becomes to you and how you never waste any if you only have a dollar, dollar and a quarter per meal to eat off. Those experiences can really deepen who you are and make you connect to other people um, that you previously didn't relate to. And then think about the privilege that you have.
1: From the Fox 6 studios, this is definitely Milwaukee. Conversations with the movers and shakers that put our slice of Wisconsin on the map in the worlds of entertainment, business, sports, and more. I'm Carl Deffenbaugh. Leading the charge in the fight to end hunger. Since Sherry Tussler became the executive director of Hunger Task Force in 1997, she's never experienced a year like this. The coronavirus pandemic effectively shut down their volunteer program while only increasing the need for food throughout Wisconsin. She takes us through the ways her skeleton crew has risen to that challenge and why she hopes the pandemic will change the stigma surrounding people in need. Plus some of the lighter moments, like the recent marriage proposal she received. And how's this for a tease? Find out what hot pepper-loving gorillas have to do with the lease for the Hunger Task Force Farm. As we're about to hear, real life in the nonprofit world is often stranger than fiction. We're happy to be joined now by the executive director of the Hunger Task Force, Sherry Tussler. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again. I haven't got the the, the pleasure of interviewing you in a while in 2020
0: here. It's been great to sort of see you as well.
1: I guess our, our listeners won't be able to see us, but yeah, this is, this is nice to do. We're going to touch on a whole sort of slew of different topics and what you guys have had to deal with as an organization this year, but I wanted to start with something a little bit lighter. This is something I learned about you uh, very early after meeting you, and then this has been confirmed by some friends and coworkers, so this is out of love. But I've been told and, and come to new that you have a tendency to maybe, to put it lightly, Curse like a sailor.
0: (laughs) No way! Told
1: you that. (laughs) When you're off mic and when you're in a a safe, (laughs) comfortable place. So I just wanted you to know this is not a TV interview. Whatever you have to do, I don't think we've established any rules about podcast uh, exploits.
0: Oh no, no! I never swear on the record. (laughs)
1: That is actually uh, why I brought that up, because one of the first times we met, we were kind of shooting the breeze beforehand and you were cussing up a storm. And I was like, how is this interview going to go? And then the moment the camera's on, it's amazing the switch you're able to share. I
0: I blame it on my brothers and my father. I grew up in a household full of men.
1: (laughs) There you go. Well, I'll start with a a more on-the-record quote that um, I read from you recently in an article in the Washington Post, actually, but it was dealing with food banks from all around the country. And the quote from you was, Never seen any circumstances as bizarre and complicated as what we're seeing right now, which is a pretty great way to encapsulate 2020, but certainly for you guys in the nonprofit world. Now that we're, what is it, eight months into this or so, how have you adjusted? What has 2020 been like from your, your neck of the woods?
0: It's been a complete shift. Um, We're coming up on eight months at this point of standing in parking lots, working only with staff, no volunteers, staff being segregated into three distinct workplaces. So there are employees that I have on payroll I haven't seen since March other than on video. And um, it's been super challenging. We would normally use thousands of volunteers at the farm. We would have people at our mobile market stops, people at the stock box sites, humping boxes. We would have groups here volunteering to food sort. All of that has been a complete standstill, although the work continues. And so there's a small group of staff that report to the Hunger Task Force on Holly every single day. And I call them team got stuff done. Um, And we have been getting stuff done and we don't have a choice. There's so much work, there's so much need. um, And there are people out there waiting for our assistance. And we've had to figure out how to do things completely differently.
1: Yeah. And for the volunteers, I mean, that, that was a decision you guys made not to kind of open it up. Given The what,
0: very what... first week, Carl, we figured out that there were going to be 256 volunteers just inside the Holly building alone. Wow. So, you know, obviously we know what it means to have limited gatherings. We know what it means to have people interacting with one another and tracing and all of that stuff. And we just couldn't take the risk because if the food bank shut down. Tens of thousands of people would go without food until we all got better and could come back to work. And so far, we've been lucky, 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 um, careful, like nobody's business. um, And we've made it through the pandemic without people getting sick.
1: That's impressive, and certainly, uh, I wish more of the state, more of the country, could say that. That's for sure. In terms of the need in total, you guys already serve tens of thousands of people every day, every month here in in Wisconsin, in southeast Wisconsin. How has that need? How have you seen that change over the course of the pandemic? Whether it was a big initial thing in the spring, or now that we're into the fall, how things have progressed.
0: Well, remember back in March when you couldn't find toilet paper?
1: Yeah, that feels very long and ago.
0: That's the beginning. Okay, so what happened was people were really worried about food. And people who shouldn't have had to worry about food were coming to food pantries um, and asking for additional food because they were going to do the stay-at-home order. But they wanted to make sure that they had plenty of food inside of their house. So even if they had money in their wallet, they didn't go to the store, they went to the pantry. And so that created some shortfalls at the pantry. We went from being able to give about two weeks worth of food down to, by the end of April, we were, it was getting kind of scary. It was like three to five days worth of food. Um, and people who really needed the food were getting modest amounts of food. The government assistance um, from the federal government didn't actually arrive until about the first of June. And so we were really, really worried that we were not going to have enough food and that we were going to run out. Um, at the same time, our pantry network started sort of folding and collapsing in on itself because it was also staffed by volunteers who themselves were seniors, and so about a quarter of our entire pantry network just sort of closed and went home during stay-at-home, and so that put additional pressure on the pantries that were open, additional pressure on two one one um once the government assistance came through it came through in the form of boxes of pre-packed food called the farmers to families program and we were able to access that and then we got large amounts of government commodities sent our way and so as the summer drew on we were able to help people but only from parking lots and so all of our pantries are open for outdoor distribution only and then we were doing distributions for seniors and other extraordinary groups including the Hmong. Um, and the Oneida and the Ho-Chunk from their parking lots so we could serve their customer base. Um, And things seemed to level out until about September when the numbers just started going back up. And they went up again in October. So we're very concerned about what it means for the winter. And um, I think we could probably tie it back to um, unemployment and what's happened with the... um, Lower wage workers not being able to work and get back to work very quickly, especially people in the service industry. And so I think we've got a a bad winter in front of us.
1: I was going to ask kind of what your, your projections look like at this point, as much as you can kind of look into the future. What are you preparing for? What are you expecting over those winter months?
0: Well, we got the holidays right around the corner and everyone wants to sit down and have a turkey at Thanksgiving and a bountiful meal. So what does that look like now? I don't know. I mean, how many people will really get together with family members or will you just make a turkey for your closest family members and friends? Um, And then Christmas. And so normally our numbers will arc during the holidays because people are looking for that little bit of extra help. And then they'll level out again in January and actually decrease in February because of earned income tax credit and people getting their tax return so what's this year look like unless something substantially changes i think a lot of people are going to remain unemployed and struggling and if the state of emergency um elapses people are going to lose their additional food stamp benefits and be placed um, at greater risk and so we're really concerned about the winner very yeah. very concerned
1: you mentioned the holidays, and I know you guys do always get, make a big push, uh, especially to get some turkeys in front of families for the holidays. What are the best ways for anyone listening, anyone kind of moved by this, to help, to support you guys when some of the traditional donation avenues are not there this year?
0: Well, this year we've actually purchased turkeys instead of waiting for people to bring us that frozen turkey. Um, and we've pushed up some of those dates, um, frankly, for distribution. And so the turkeys are actually coming out this Friday to our Food Pantry Network. Um, If people want to assist, they can go online and do a virtual food drive or just participate in our virtual food drive by purchasing one or more of those items because a turkey tastes just as good at Christmas and it tastes just as good in January, right? So think about buying those holiday foods, uh, chipping in, um, or just go ahead and buy some peanut butter or some canned vegetables. People need all of that stuff to make the meal.
1: You mentioned January. That was actually going to be my follow up question. Just in general, whether it's this year or other years, how you approach the holidays? Because it's great that everyone's kind of in a giving spirit and wants to support, but how have you tried to maximize that while also letting folks know that you still need things after the holidays as well? You can still help out an organization like Hunger Task Force.
0: I always see the holidays as an opportunity to um, work with people in terms of their generosity. This is a time when they're feeling really good about themselves. They want to help out. They've noticed somebody standing on the corner. They have seen kids standing at the bus stop with no coat. They want to do something to make a difference. Do it and then feel good about it. And when you feel really good about it, keep doing it because you'll keep feeling really good about yourself. So Thanksgiving and Christmas are opportunities for you to do something good to help another person and then just sort of get in the habit.
1: Yeah, and keep that rolling as long as you can. That's well put. Um, I'd love to get into a little bit of your background at first. I was reading that uh, at one point in time, at least maybe back in college, you planned to be an art teacher. And obviously, you've gone a a very different direction here to be one of the more established nonprofit leaders in Milwaukee for decades, taking over Hunger Task Force in in 1997. So what was it about art that interested you? And then what was it that led you to find your, your true calling in the career that you would make after that?
0: I always really enjoyed art, and I still do to this point, and I like making things. Um, So art seemed right um, in college, but that was a heck of a long time ago. I ended up working with delinquent youth. I liked teenagers at that time, but I was just coming off of being a teenager myself. Um, And before you know it, I was working in group homes, and then I was working with people with serious mental illness, and then I was working with the homeless, and I was working with domestic violence victims, and so, I don't think everybody actually ends up being what they plan to be in high school or even in college. Um, and eventually I was working in a sexual assault treatment program with a group of nuns who are running a hospital and they sent me to Cardinal Stritch University and had me finish my degree, but in management. And so here I am running a nonprofit because I'm a trained manager.
1: I know uh, those are certainly not the easiest situations to be in, but what was it about them that you found so fulfilling, so rewarding and wanted to, to keep putting yourself into
0: I think um, empowering somebody especially after they've been victimized after they're down after they've experienced that poverty for a really long time and sort of helping pick somebody up and dust them off and look them in the eye and tell them they're going to be all right and that everything's going to be okay and like let's give me your hand and I'll show you the way Yeah. and you know you can put some people back together and that's important work and that's really been what I've dedicated my career to yeah
1: Maybe not on that, to that degree, but have you yourself ever experienced some of the things that you work with now, people who are either homeless or out of work or are in need of some help just to put a meal on the table?
0: Yeah. It was the 1980s. I lost my job in college because it was one of those government jobs, and we had just selected Ronald Reagan, and they eliminated the program. And uh, we went without food. I didn't know I was eligible for food stamps. I'd never even heard of them. I went hungry, and um, eventually we lost our housing. And so I ended up living with my friend's parents for a while until I got another job and pulled it back together. But it stopped going to school as a result because I just needed to keep a roof over my head and food on the table. So I've been there.
1: I'm sure that's not necessarily the case for everyone that works at Hunger Task Force, everyone that leads an organization. But do you find that that experience does maybe enrich your job or, or lead you to have a little bit more empathy than, than others? Because you've, you've lived it something that otherwise you just wouldn't have the same experience.
0: Yeah, I think um, it has deepened who I am in terms of my character and probably my soul. And um, I would encourage people who haven't had um, a poverty experience, haven't had to go without to at least do something like the street angels just did, which was a sleep out for 48 hours on the street with nothing but a sleeping bag. Try it and then see how you feel about judging another person. Try going um, on the food stamp diet for a week and see how important food becomes to you and how you never waste any if you only have a dollar, a dollar and a quarter per meal to eat off of. Um, Those experiences can really deepen who you are and make you connect to other people um, that you previously didn't relate to and then think about the, um, the privilege that you have and what you're doing with it.
1: I'm always fascinated by uh, the nonprofit world in general. That, that was the world my, my father worked in when I was growing up, and I think it's just such an interesting mentality for people who are in it. As you, I'm sure people can hear from this, your, your energy is just at another level. Like Your ability to believe in a, in a pursuit like this is fantastic. How difficult is it to keep that when you do face such, such a daunting challenge, such a potentially overwhelming situation with unemployment and with hunger in our communities?
0: Well, at the very beginning of the pandemic, some guy from Channel 10 interviewed me and he was like, how's it going? And I said, in the morning, I wake up and I hear that song in my head. It's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. And I would hear that as I'm taking my shower and I'm like, I must be crazy, but I do feel fine and it's going to be okay. And so um, having an attitude where you're there to assist other people and you're courageous, Um, and you know that you can make a difference because you know stuff and you can control uh, resources and get them out to people, you can stay involved. And that's what we've done. Um, I'm really proud of the people here at Hunger Task Force because we're essential workers and we've made a difference in other people's lives. And we made sure that a lot of people had access to food when they were fearful of leaving their house.
1: Is some of it that even I know you as an executive director have to see the big picture, but Kind of focusing on the, those little wins, those those moments where you know you've changed a life, versus looking at the overall overall big task ahead of you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, my daughter asked me one time how I managed to think about everything I'm supposed to be thinking about and organize it all, and I said I never think about it. So um, I don't worry. Um, I do think about what's happening three months from now, a year from today, that sort of thing. But from one minute to the next, I'm not somebody who's gonna wake up in the middle of the night in a panic. I'm too old for that. Um everything will work its way out. It always has and it will again. Um so we're just gonna keep motoring through one day to the next.
1: One of the big picture goals of course is to to end hunger in our communities. And I'm sure you can share some of the the numbers about how prevalent that is, unfortunately. Is that, is that a real goal? Is that something that could be eliminated, could be achieved here in Milwaukee and in, in
0: the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. I ask people to back up and think, we're from Wisconsin. We produce enough food to feed all of our citizens and many, many others in other states and other countries. So there is enough food for everyone here in Wisconsin so we can't end hunger. We just have to make the decision on a public policy level to do that. And so I remind people that, and you know, even I've been talking about this during the pandemic. There was a storm called Katrina that hit New Orleans. And there were people in a Superdome. And the, the world was flooded. And we wanted to help. And we had the resources. We just couldn't get there. And so ending hunger is being the people who get there. It's making sure that people have access. It's what the USDA recently has called the last mile. But you got to get the last mile in order to get the food to the people. Um, Hunger Task Force's mission is feed people today, end future hunger. The pandemic has forced us to do feed people today like none other, but in the middle of it, the ending future hunger part has also come true in that we have now the highest maximum allotment of benefits for the food share program that we've ever had. States can control that allotment. Our state has made a decision to increase it to the maximum allowable so people can go to the grocery store and shop. Kids who aren't getting their school meals, the state and the department, state's Department of Health Services and Department of Public Instruction took their databases and compared them and sent money to people's houses to replace those school meals. So, in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of ending future hunger has happened. And we have changed public policy and perception about the importance of the food share program. Before the pandemic, People on food share were no good lazy bums who we needed to drug test and forced to work. We don't do that anymore. People on food share because we realize how important the program is and how it actually is an economic driver.
1: It's really interesting. So, I mean, in so many ways, the pandemic has changed the way we view the way we accept many things in life. Just the fact that we're doing this every year versus in person right now, but some of those larger issues are becoming more, more, okay. It's kind of broken down some of the stigmas, would you say?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, I always thought that the food stamp program helped people put food on the table and then they could choose their own foods instead of the foods I would give them. Hey, Carl, here's some tuna and some peanut butter and some, Crispy rice flakes and whatever, and you go, I don't like crispy rice flakes. I want the corn flakes. Um, you could pick your own food if you go to the grocery store. That's, that's a huge dignifier. Um, when we had the last recession, the federal government added food share to people's cards and they immediately went out and spent it on food. Oh my God, that keeps the transportation industry intact. It keeps the food producers intact. It keeps the guy who's cutting and wrapping your cheese at work. And so what we figured out in the middle of all of this is that Wisconsin's food economy was harmed and we could do something by purchasing up the food that would otherwise be wasted because restaurants were closed, because schools were closed and we could get it to hungry people. And so we figured out that the food economy also needs people who eat food in order to be okay. And hungry people need to eat food.
1: That's well put, <laughs> well put for sure. Um, I'd be curious about uh, maybe some favorite stories, whether it's during the pandemic or, or just over your, your years with hunger task force that, that are a real win, that are, that are a real positive that you remember, whether it's an individual person that you were able to help a family, something that comes to mind or, or a moment from either the pandemic or over the last few years.
0: Well, last month I got a marriage proposal in the Pickens State Parking Lot in West Dallas. That was fun.
1: You yourself were proposed to.
0: <laughs> I won't even tell you what he said to me. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> he has mom in the seat of the car next to him, and I was like, "Really? This is what you got?" He says, "I've been looking at you in the line for a while now." <sighs> that was fun. Sure. Do you
1: guys have a date set yet, or do yeah. we come to that? Okay. <laughs> It's <laughs> changing lives in more ways than one. That's a that's a pretty good one. <laughs> a story, a story I did hear about you, Sharon, from one of your former coworkers, but um, that you maybe got a hip surgery and worked through it during one point in your career. I'm just amazed by the energy. So take, take me through that and how you are able to kind of combine some, some real physical issues with not Well, I don't
0: want to blame the Wisconsin State Fair, but if you have walked that bad boy for 10 hours, I left the State Fair uh, in August and when I went to get into my pickup truck, I had to pick my leg up by my pants in order to get it into the truck and I was like, something's not right here. And I went and saw my doctor and he was like, yeah, you kind of need your hip replaced. I'm like, that seems kind of extreme. And I was only 56 at the time. So I was like, that's crazy. So they gave me a cortisone injection and the pain went away for two whole days. And then it came raging back. And I was like, okay, um, we have to fundraise from October 1st to December 31st, about $3 million in cash in order to keep everything okay at the Hunger Task Force, just to make payroll, to get the trucks rolling, to get the food delivered. So doctor says, okay, let's do the surgery. I'm like I can't miss the first quarter of the year. I yeah, so I worked for the first quarter. Um, it was exquisite pain, and anybody who's ever had a joint replaced knows what I'm talking about. But January third, I just had to get to January third. <laughs> so you got had- my hip replaced in the middle of the polar vortex. It was great. <laughs> Yikes! Well, it's a good time not to be
1: moving around then, I guess. <laughs> take that for sure <laughs> that's a really funny story i'm assuming you've been back to the state fair since you haven't held it against them all, all these years then.
0: no no i love the state fair i wish I mean, you know we didn't obviously have one this year i missed it but yeah i can walk the state fair again thank you to dr bong
1: <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things uh, i've heard is the the farm that you guys run is a fantastic place i had the pleasure to be down there one time spending a morning and you guys are actually grow and are able to use all this amazing fresh produce and there's a number of other things but I heard that the actual lease to get the land initially had all these kind of quirky parts of the deal or parts of the promises or something like that what goes in what goes into it first of all landing the farm before we
0: get to the work well you know it was funny because I got a phone call from the superintendent and he said we're going to close the farm I didn't even know there was one and we want to donate all the food to you Please tell me you'll take it. And I was like, well, of course we'll take the food. And he said, good, because I told the Journal Sentinel that. So then the Journal Sentinel calls me and they said, are you gonna take the food? And I was like, yeah, we'd love the food, that's great. I still don't even know what I'm talking about. And then they say, well, the superintendent said that he's also gonna give you the farm next year. Are you gonna take it? Like, of course I'm going to take it. I've never been there, right? I don't, it's 208 acres. I got into hot water with my board chair who was like, what were you thinking? And I said, I was thinking about 208 acres of farmland in Franklin, it's gotta be worth something, right? Well, I get out there and it's actually like a series of community gardens and the inmates are working along with correctional officers. So um, over the course of years, we have to figure out a lease agreement with Milwaukee County. And as it turns out, the old superintendent was married to the old head of the parks. And so the inmates did all kinds of stuff for the parks. They planted um, trees that would be taken to the parks and replaced trees that would fall. They chopped wood for the county park lodges. They grew fish inside of the barn. And the fish would then be taken out to the county park lagoon so that people could have an up north fishing experience in Milwaukee County. They grew pumpkins and hot peppers for the zoo. Because gorillas like hot peppers. I didn't know that. I just learned that. They pop them like candy, I guess. So our lease was $1, 40,000 fish, 10 cords of wood, and an acre of pumpkins. And it is to this day.
1: <laughs> so every year that's your requirement.
0: <laughs> so people ask, why are you growing pumpkins at the farm? You can't really eat a pumpkin. Well, we do grow some pie pumpkins, but we mostly grow jack-o'-lanterns because they use them to decorate the zoo. <laughs> we're still chopping wood, and we're still giving it to the county park lodges, and we grow 40,000 um, Wisconsin native species fish in that barn, and we take them out for fishing experiences here in Milwaukee County.
1: If that's not the best, uh, if you work in a nonprofit, you just roll with whatever's <laughs> sent your way story. That's, that's Weird be.
0: stuff happens in nonprofit. That's a fact.
1: Oh man It's interesting because you mentioned the fundraising there for a moment and how much you guys do have to raise to support the work um, I understand when you took over so going back you know more than two decades now, it was not always the case that you guys would make it to the end of the year that you would always have food like you said at one point this year it even got a little dicey. What are you maybe most proud of from from your tenure from your time leading the organization in terms of where you took it where where it started and where you've taken it to
0: yeah, when I started um we only gave. Um, a dozen food items out and we had created this thing called the how to pack a bag strategy and so I didn't understand why it was a crisis if we ran out of cream of mushroom soup but it's the goo that holds the tuna and the noodles and the peas together so we were just telling people make tuna casserole constantly it was like yuck so um, my goal was to get people the foods that they like and that they want and if you think about how your diet your religion your culture impacts what you eat and whether or not you're healthy. And so, you know, here we are fast forward, fast forward, 23 years, fast forward, we adopted something called the USDA MyPlate, and now all we give are healthy foods. And so I feel like we've gone from a group of people who suggested that you could end hunger with a casserole to a group of people who are affecting the public health of poor people across Milwaukee County by assuring that they're getting equal access to foods that are good for them.
1: And the ramifications when it comes to public health are exponential, how much that can change.
0: You think about diabetes and hypertension and obesity and how you, know, you can have an obese child who's still hungry. And the reason that they're hungry is because we keep pumping them full of complex carbohydrates instead of fruits and vegetables. And so teaching people to eat well from the beginning, only offering healthy foods at the pantries. Um, at first, our volunteers were like, this is never going to work. And, you know, there's not a single family that's coming in and said, where are my cookies? You know, how come you're not giving me candy? They're just really thankful to get the healthy foods that we do get to them. And sometimes they say that our produce from the farm looks better than the produce at Sendix.
1: Hmm. That's pretty good. I'd love to end with a a few kind of Quicker, more fun topics here. Uh, the Journal of Sentinel had a great uh, photo gallery of some work that you did on a house across the street. So there was a house that burned out from where you live in, in Milwaukee, I guess. And it was, I would imagine, a bit of an eyesore in your neighborhood. You took on a project on, on top of all the other work that you do here. What What is this project? And what do you enjoy about kind of refurbishing, renovating homes on the side of everything else that you do?
0: I was an art major. I like making things. Sometimes, you know, the work that we do Is physical. And um, the work that I do uh, working on houses causes me to think, you know, like, what color will that be? How would I want that to look in my house? And so I um, have some brain food, I guess, to think about while I'm busy humping boxes and parking lots. You know, which tile should I pick? Um, but that particular house is across the street from my house and it had a fire three years ago at Christmas and, um, an entire gable was missing and it was covered in tar paper and, uh, green city boards. And it was awful to look at. And I complained and complained and the city was like, it's not getting torn down. Mm -hmm. They finally suggested that I buy it and rehab it. And I didn't know that you could rehab a house that had a tree growing from the attic, but I did. And now I have a wonderful couple that live next door and they're homeowners. So it's. It's a good solution.
1: That's an amazing story. Um, You mentioned the love of State Fair. I know you love lots of things in Milwaukee. We've uh, crossed paths at at Summerfest as well. Do you have any favorite concerts, favorite experiences that that have stuck out to you in, in your time in this great city?
0: You know, Wisconsin State Fair is always a great time because I get to reunite with my adult daughters. And we do, you know, the big slide, and we drink some beer, and we eat some fresh cheese curds. And it's just, it's cool. You go to the Wisconsin Products Pavilion, you hang out. Um, Little known story both of my daughters were pig sliders, which meant that um, they would get out that pink piggy bank slide for toddlers every year. And our teenagers here from Hunger Task Force would staff the slide. And so every year, uh, before we leave the Wisconsin State Fair after we've had a couple of beers. We go over and ride the pig slide. <laughs> That's a great story. We know how to unbolt it and break into it. <laughs> <Of> course, <yes. laughs>
1: we'll leave those uh, those secrets uh, to you for now. I'll finish with this. Uh, Sherry, I, hopefully for our sake, this is still years down the road, but eventually when you choose to, to retire and pass the torch uh, to someone else at Hunger Task Force, have you thought about what's next? You, you spend so much time worrying about others. Have you thought what you'll do with a little more time on your hands?
0: I'd like to buy a Jeep and get in it and drive. I like uh, checking out the national parks. I would like to wake up in a warm place. Um, I'm not a fan, a big fan of winter. Um, and I live on a corner, so I got to shovel a lot. So um, all I really do is think about working less and getting way more often, um, checking out what my kids are doing, and uh, seeing how other people live.
1: Maybe explore that art career as well.
0: <laughs> Who knows what I'll make?
1: <laughs> well, hopefully, like I said for our sake, there's still uh, plenty more work to be done here before that. But we very much appreciate all the time, share. This has been great to catch up. Thanks, Rob. Thank you once again to Sherry Tussler, and a reminder, it's never a bad time to donate if you want to check out more information on Hunger Task Force's website, and a thank you as well to two people you don't hear from behind the scenes, Dave Machuda and Sarah Smith, who do so much work to make Definitely Milwaukee possible, as well as our other podcast here at Fox 6, Open Record, featuring the Fox 6 investigators. If you want to keep this going, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, or you can find the latest episodes anytime at fox6now.com.